0: In this devastating time for people, the economy, and global business, which companies will survive and which won't? Hi everybody, I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. There's no question that the global economy is in dire straits as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and subsequent lockdown of commerce and consumers. So much for one of the longest economic booms in our recorded history. When the current situation will ease is anybody's guess, but we can assess the qualities that will allow some companies to survive while others go under. That's what I'm talking about today with Ross Waitzman, Director of Corporate Recovery at Gavin Solmanese. He offers his opinion about which businesses are equipped to weather the storm on both the supply and demand side, and which ones are at greatest risk. And we'll attempt to read the signs that might indicate the beginnings of a recovery. Finally, we'll discuss whether this particular disaster will provide companies with valuable lessons in how to mitigate the impact of future ones, or do they just never learn? Here is my conversation with Ross Waitsman. Ross Waitzman, welcome to the show. Welcome. Who, in your opinion, is best prepared right now to weather the storm in terms of supply and demand predictability and responding to the current crisis?
1: So these are going to be the companies that are liquid, that are focusing on their employees. And this is counterintuitive, but are lastly focusing on customers. And that's a little different from what we've seen in the past. The survivors are definitely going to be those that have that liquidity. But absent that, it's going to be very large companies and those companies that can meet the needs of consumer staple demand in this current environment. And who is most at risk? Definitely the smaller companies, those that are focused on non-consumer staples. So if you're an apparel, brick-and-mortar retailer, very difficult times. But if you're able to innovate and adapt, prevent, you know, perhaps move your production to areas I just mentioned, you have a much better chance of weathering this. And then, of course, geography also plays a big hand in this. Of course,
0: the tricky part here is that most disruptions are geography-based so that they require you to resource somewhere else in the world, but this is indeed happening all over the world, so the question of alternative sourcing isn't quite on the table like it has been in the past, right?
1: Right. And it's kind of interesting. So, for example, one of the things that uh, Gavin Salmanese is involved in loosely is trying to help one of the hospitals secure a supply of N95 masks. One of the best sources is going to be in China right now. But my understanding, and we're just a financial player in this, but my understanding is that the Chinese supplier has had problems with, with a tier two supplier of silk. They're now procuring that from India. So if you're a hospital looking to get these masks, do you really want trust, trust something that comes over from China with a new supplier that has questionable quality coming from India? Now on mm-hmm. the flip side, I've talked to people involved in manufacturing in the heartland of America in Iowa, and they're going at business as usual. There are groups that are uh, making towers for cell phones. Those guys are seeing unbelievable demand, but those areas haven't been impacted. They don't have issues where their kids are being forced to stay home for school. And parents are a lot freer to go out and contribute to the workforce. So, yeah, there is a divergence depending on what you're talking about.
0: Now, with the things in mind that you just mentioned, you set the table for us very nicely, but you have a really interesting approach to this crisis. And that is in the form of a so-called playbook that is made up of multiple phases. And I'd like you to lead us through those phases and tell me a little bit more about what that playbook consists of and how it can be of use to companies in determining supply and demand, keeping continuity going, predicting what's going to happen and all that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You put it very well. This is a viral problem. Nobody knows when it's going to end. You'll have a viral solution, but we leave that to the medical professionals. So until that time, I describe this period as phase one. You're just trying to survive to get to the other side of COVID. And in that environment, as I mentioned, it's cash, employees, and customers. and just fascinating issues happening there. Then after that, how do you start resuming normal operations? That's going to be phase two. So, for example, if you're a restaurant, how do you engender confidence from your, your market What kind of marketing are you doing to get them back to eating at your establishment? Do you have to change the footprint of your operation? Maybe look at some permanent closures to stores, but then are the stores going to look different? You mentioned we don't know where this disease is going to spread. Is it going to be concentrated in certain hotspots? Is it going to be across the entire country? Optimistic view, you have hotspots that are ring-fenced, and there's a, let's call the other areas tertiary to that they may open and resume. Well, if you don't have a viral solution and you're a kitchen that has to have cooks six feet apart, how do you operate in that kind of environment? So that's a phase two kind of question. And then phase three is when we have gotten a solution, everybody's passed this phase one, phase two discussions, but longer term, what do you do? For example, if you have been tied to cheap supply out in China, you're now going to very realistically think about deglobalization decoupling pharmaceuticals used to be produced in Puerto Rico for example do we migrate stuff back to Puerto Rico production back to Puerto Rico
0: so the long term action takes place when the crisis is over or as the crisis is in its late stages or when do you start thinking we're moving now from short term to long term
1: it is never too late to start thinking about phase 2 and in fact we've heard CEOs talk about this very issue they're talking in parallel about how they deal with this. So for example, the company that makes Lysol, there was an interview with their CEO today, and one of his factories, his largest factories, was based in Wuhan, China. So they had to adjust for that. And, And what they did in this phase one situation in China was they worked with the local and state authorities to help them keep production moving. They procured hotels for their employees and did other things to protect and support their employees and keep the supply moving. Now, they're taking some of the very same lessons from Asia, and they're moving them here to the U.S. to keep things going. But they recognize they're not able to meet demand in this environment. Simultaneous to this, they're thinking longer term because this isn't a short-term problem, they recognize. Leading guidance is vaccine could take 12 to 18 months. Well, how do you survive until that period? So you're always thinking, if you're smart and, and getting to the point of who survives, it's the people mm-hmm. who are constantly thinking, innovating. And the great news is, America has a great history of doing that. We're doing exactly what the Manhattan Project did in World War II, and we're going to get through this on the backbone of innovation and American uh, willpower.
0: But well, we should not underestimate the changes we're going to have to make. I reference what you just mentioned about uh, restaurant kitchens, where chefs would have to be six feet apart. Well, we all know what a restaurant kitchen looks like. Chefs are literally shoulder to shoulder the way that kitchens are designed today. That would require quite a change in the way that restaurants are laid out and built.
1: Absolutely. But let me give you a more sobering situation. So we have all seen just three months ago news reports about what happens in an amazon factory you see people standing shoulder to shoulder moving goods and services what happens there we already know that there was uh, an amazon warehouse in queens that had to shut down so if you want resiliency in your supply chain you have to think about protecting your employees thinking about the layout and that's a whole different environment and do I know the answer to what all that looks like? No, I can speculate. But I would say that the executives and the C-suites of companies, they're trying desperately to figure that out right now.
0: Of all, an Amazon warehouse is a lot more space to play with than the small kitchen of a restaurant. But we're talking about two quite different things there. I also find it interesting that there's Two possible scenarios that could happen in terms of the end of this economic crisis, and that is you have all this pent-up demand. No one's buying, no one's doing any business, and then all of a sudden the floodgates open and everybody wants to go out to eat, everybody wants to buy products, all this stuff, and you're just flooded with demand. Or maybe there's some permanent change to buyer habits that happened while we were all locked in. And we might not want to do what we did before. You speculate as to which way that would be, a combination of the two? What should we be looking for
1: there? It's a very interesting point. So research is showing that um, Americans are eating healthier now. They are losing weight. We talked about restaurants. To what extent do they return to restaurants post-COVID? If we talk about demand, yes, you're right. You could have very rapid pent-up demand, and these factories are going to have to respond rapidly. One of the interesting situations we're seeing in China is that They're having a problem getting their labor back. Now, about two weeks ago, I was involved with people, and and we were told that about one-third of Chinese labor is migratory. They come from outside of China, and they're reluctant to return. China has responded trying to get their domestic labor force back by chartering trains and buses and offering between $750 and $1,000 just to show up at the factory. Mm -hmm. This is two weeks later, they're still only getting about 70 to 80% of their workforce back into the factories. So even if you have this pent-up demand, you're going to have to, as a nation, address some fundamental issues about how to get that labor force back to meet that kind of demand, or you're going to have widespread failures. Of course,
0: China is no stranger to that problem, because even in its best days in the manufacturing sector... After the break for Chinese New Year, huge numbers of workers would not come back. And so Chinese factors, I guess, have had to deal with that for some time, although maybe not on the scale that you are describing here. Now, the question of when it's all going to get better... When it's all going to recover? When the disease is going to die down? When the economy is going to come back? All, of course, impossible questions. Nobody has the answer to those questions. But what I'd like to hear from you are what are some of the determining factors that we could be looking at that would help us to understand and maybe make some good guesses? What should we be looking at as signposts of recovery?
1: This is a viral problem, so it's it's going to have to come from medicine. But then you have the psychological issues. So what we've seen is an economic shutdown, and that is very hard to restart and. It's unclear how how the United States is going to respond to this. Yeah, My best guess would be this is something between the Great Depression and a Great Recession at the worst. But in Mm -hmm. the most optimistic case, we could have a V-shaped recovery, although what I'm hearing is the probability of that is very low. And a V-shaped recovery, you you fall down very quick and you rise very quickly as well. Mm -hmm. And we'll have to see. There are lawyers I'm talking to, bankruptcy attorneys, who are getting a new case in Every single hour. And that's a real concern because if some companies just don't survive this mess, what happens? Now, what we've seen in the oil industry is it appears that the, the very large oil companies are perfectly fine with the small players going out of business. They're hoarding cash. And what people are speculating is that they're going to pick up companies and, and their production at very cheap prices on the other end of this. And I would expect to see. A lot of that happening. But again, it goes to speak to the point the large will survive. And if you're illiquid and small, it's going to be tough sledding ahead.
0: We are starting to see signs of recovery in China already. Wuhan is opening up. Factors are being staffed back up. Can we look to China in order to gauge the speed of recovery in our own country as an example?
1: Yes and no. China is able to, they have an authoritative regime. They can dictate that schools should open. And by the way, except in westernmost provinces, my understanding is that there's been no discussion about when schools are going to reopen. But you go back to the United States and you think about the very same environment, schools could very well dictate when companies go back to operate. Because if you're a parent and you have kids at home, you're just hamstrung. You can't go back to the office. But even if you want to take that situation off the table, there's some very interesting political dynamics that are happening. And we can look at airlines as an example. So we know in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan ordered air traffic controllers back to work. In this current environment, could the federal government force airlines to start go fly again to resume business? They could try, but what we know is that most of the airports are actually owned by municipalities. Now, what's interesting about this is most of those airports have also received federal grants, and that gives a little leverage to the feds. But Hawaii just recently imposed a two-week quarantine on anyone flying into Hawaii. Now, let's say you're a state farm salesman out of Texas. Texas has opened up the gates to resume normalcy, and they're able and willing to do that. And you need to fly into New York City, but you're going to be quarantined for two weeks. Are you really going to do that? So there's a lot of stickiness to restarting an economy, and who's going to dictate that, how that's going to happen is yet to be seen. But because the federal government didn't impose mandatory shutdowns, they're going to have a lot of challenges imposing a mandatory back-to-work decree. Because
0: hmm, they didn't set the precedent for imposing anything from any kind of mandatory action. So That's why, right. So why would then companies accept and become along afterwards? Yeah.
1: And we've seen this all over America. Everyone's trying to figure out policy in the absence of federal guidance. And you're seeing people just take control over their own situations in a lot of ways as yeah. a result.
0: The silver lining we would hope that we could take away from this is the lessons that we can learn from this experience to better prepare for the next time it happens. Now, we didn't necessarily learn that much from SARS and Ebola, I guess, or any other number of disruptions that have happened to supply chains in the last 10 or 20 years. But what kinds of lessons do you think we might learn now that will be of help going forward?
1: The sad truth is, Robert, is that we are seeing the very same mistakes 100 years ago being played out again today. So for example, coal miners are being forced to go back into the coal mines or being encouraged. We know in South Africa in, in 100 years ago in 1918, they did this very same thing and they were dealing with a different threat, but mm-hmm. 80% of gold miners or diamond miners were getting infected with disease and that caused huge problems. Now, I'm not saying you're going to see 80% of your workforce die, but we're not learning some of the same lessons. And if you have people in a in a factory working shoulder to shoulder in December when COVID is still dangerous, unfortunately we're still seeing some of those same mistakes. There are companies that are taking proactive measures, and that is very reassuring. And we have so many more advances that are gonna create lessons that we learn how to social distance. I mean, there's a whole thing I could talk about on hand washing that's amazing and, and how much that's changing. We saw water pressure drop in Iran just to an increase in hand washing. And by the wow, way, really only 17% of the world's population washes, this is globally, washes their hands after using a toilet. In in developed countries, we know that women... Wash your hands about 66% of the time, men 33% of the time. So you roll that out to a workforce environment. Yeah, there's certainly good habits like washing your hands that can be reinforced. But that's also going to slow down your production, right? If you mm-hmm. have to start giving people more time to wash their hands like a surgeon. But these are all good habits that hopefully people engender, at least for the very near future and, and most hopefully into the far future. But
0: habits fade, don't they? We go back to our old ways of working. We forget, you know, another year or two goes by and we don't have another career crisis and we just sort of subconsciously go back to the way we were doing it before.
1: Yeah. In in 1918, Philadelphia was the hardest hit city from the 1918 pandemic. And that Mm. was because the mayor of Philadelphia held a large parade to raise war bonds we now see Mardi Gras being held down in New Orleans. And 14 days later, there's an outbreak of cases. And we see this with spring breakdown. And look, hopefully I'm wrong and these are minor issues. But if it plays out in a bad, ugly way, it's support that we have not learned our lessons.
0: Now, you hold two very interesting certifications, a certified insolvency and restructuring advisor. And you hold a certification in distressed business valuation. That's CIRA and CDBV for acronym fans. I expect you're going to be pretty darn busy in the months to come. Do you think we can save most of the businesses
1: that are on the edge as a result of this? We can sure do our best. The problem is if if you don't have money and if money is sitting on the sidelines, it's very challenging. So I've been speaking to lenders this week for various reasons. In one case, we're trying to actually move the capability to build a 10,000 square foot hospital in a single day right? Cool stuff like that. We're getting demand. This is equipment that's used by the U.S. military. They drop them out of um, airplanes during the Gulf War. The U.S. has great, tremendous capabilities, but we also know there's demand in countries in Africa, for example, not, not to give out names, but to get financing for that is very challenging. So lenders right now across the board are sitting on cash. And the reason is they don't know who's going to survive and weather this storm. And going into phase two, their playbook is let's give cash to the the best credit quality customers we can. And Mm -hmm. in most cases, those lenders are going to be lending to a higher quality credit in phase two. And all that means is that in phase one, there's going to be a lot of companies that just don't survive because they don't have access to money. And unless another company is going to come in and buy them, which is challenging for reasons I spoke about before, and there's going to be an overcapacity of production, it's going to be tough sledding for a lot of the smaller, less liquid companies that file.
0: You say a lot of companies are sitting on cash, but before this crisis, a lot of companies were also sitting on debt. Yeah. Huge amounts of it. That's going to come home to roost. That was already a crisis before coronavirus, and this might just exacerbate that, too. So might that not put a lot of companies in extreme jeopardy with the heavy debt lows that they were already
1: carrying? Absolutely, without question. Treasury yields are all-time lows. The spread, the premium you have to pay as a highly distressed company to get a loan has skyrocketed. I mean, two weeks ago is 4% over the higher quality companies. And as I mentioned now, I, I don't even think you talk about that spread because if you're distressed, it is tremendously hard to get money. I'll put something else into perspective. When it comes to valuation, I'm, I'm involved in a couple situations where we're looking to buy assets potentially, and we're looking at liquidation values. And I'm scratching my head wondering, how realistic is this? Depressionary values on companies. Well, if you go back to the Great Depression, you look at what happened to asset values during that period, going from the heights in 1928 to 1942 before we went entered a war, asset prices fell 65%. In a lot of cases, that's very close to liquidation value for these companies. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't bode well to get additional money. What lender's going to lend into that situation? They're probably going to offer very little money, and that may or may not be enough to allow a company to survive. And short of a lender providing money you're at the mercy of a company buying you out. And that just comes down to how interesting are you? Well, you have said that predicting either
0: demand or supply capabilities is like trying to catch a falling, disease-infected knife in the dark. But Ross Waitsman of... Gavin Solmanese, it sounds like you've given us a little bit of advice to help avoid that. Maybe wear some heavy gloves or something, metaphorically. I don't know. But thank you so much for joining us today to give us some insight into this crisis and how companies might weather it. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you, Robert. Be well. That was my conversation
0: with Ross Waitsman of Gavin Solmanese. Talking about the pandemic, recession, and prospects for recovery. We're online at www.SupplyChainBrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.